Mr. Triantopoulos. Make the same joke I made for everybody else, but these are your keys to the kingdom. Yeah, and by kingdom, uh, church office. <laughs> to bind and loose, yeah, and to make as many copies as you want. It's, uh, it's a really, yeah, important church power, the power of the copier. short chapter. We've got time. We still see some folks rolling into the parking lot. Scott, hey. how's the foot? It's, uh, it's foot terrible. Oh, good. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. I hope uh, on your way in you picked up a handout, which should be out on the table, and also a hymnal so that we can have access to Westminster Confession that will be in the back that we'll probably dip into from time to time. Um, and as we get started, I'm going to open in prayer, and we are going to look together at a brief portion in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to read verses 11 to 15. We're not going to read past 15 because verse 16 opens up cans of worms that I don't want to deal with today. So we're going to stop at 15. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. Let's pray, and then let's look at this passage together. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which inspired men of old, and they wrote it down and were carried along. And we have received it, uh, and not only have read it with our eyes, but by the power of your Holy Spirit have believed it in our souls and our hearts, placed our faith and trust in you, and we pray that as we study today these words of O. Palmer Robertson, uh, we would learn more about your word than we would about his works. I uh, pray that he would be a conduit for us to see uh, your goodness, uh, your covenant faithfulness to your people. Help us to rejoice, Lord, uh, in the way that you have worked. Even as we uh, discuss the diversity of the covenants, help us to see that you have always been working toward one end. Uh, uniting all things together under Christ. We pray that you would help us to catch a glimpse for your work, uh, for your salvation, and help us to rejoice in all that you do for us and in us. Uh, through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 11 to 15, just as an orienting thought this morning. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We'll stop there, again, as I mentioned, because uh, if we keep going, we'll see some of the language that we've, uh, we've passed over in the first chapters about will and testament and, uh, and uh, may just get off course for what we're talking about today. We can always come back to that later if we need to. Um, but today, in our study of Christ of the Covenants, we are in chapter 4. We have missed a week because of a snow cancellation. And you may recall that before we broke for, uh, for last weekend, uh, Scott Owens led us in a study of chapter 3. And I have a much, much easier job today than Scott had uh, two weeks ago. Uh, we split, so we'd originally planned to do chapters 3 and 4 together, but we split those, not because chapter 3 has a lot in it, uh, or, or, or chapter 4 rather, not because chapter 4 has a lot in it, but because chapter 3 was jam-packed, and yet uh, Scott managed to cover all of the material, uh, albeit perhaps uh, quickly, uh, very quickly. Uh, we got through it. We have a little more breathing room in this chapter today. Before we get started on chapter 4, I wonder if there's anybody other than Scott who could give us a brief overview of the, the main thrust of chapter 3 when Robertson was talking about the unity of God's covenants. Anybody want to tell us what we've already studied? Thank you, Rob. Yeah, they're pretty united. Uh, deep statement. How are they united? What are the things that we see that, that tie the covenants together? What did he suggest? Okay, okay. Uh, so they are uh, all covenants themselves. So when we look at the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, there are stipulations. They are uh, bonds and blood sovereignly administered, as he told us in the first chapter. Yep, he gave us uh, several um, unifying elements. Mike. Yep, so they all have to do with God's bond with man, the, the covenant that he's establishing. Cynthia? Good. So that was one of the unifying factors in all of God's uh, covenant faithfulness is this idea of a generational continuity. Uh, so we can look back, and in fact, uh, two weeks ago, uh, we had a baptism right after we learned about the continuity of this idea of the seed. And in the PCA, when we have a baptism, we connect Genesis 17 with Acts chapter 2. Uh, so God makes an eternal covenant with Abraham to be uh, God to his children after him uh, throughout their generations, uh, to be God to, to their children, to their seed, uh, and, to, and to be their God and to call them as his people. And we see that. Uh, so one of the things we saw was a thematic unity, uh, this theme of I will be their God, they will be my people, going through all of God's covenants. We also saw this generational continuity uh, that God uh, works through covenant families. We saw that. Uh, and we also saw what he called a structural continuity or, or a structural unity uh, that they're, they're built the same way. Getting a, a bit to what Mike said, it all has to do with, with God's bond that he initiates with his people. Good. Uh, so that's a, that's a good quick overview. We had a question last week, and it was from Jay Wanick, uh, who unfortunately isn't with us yet. Maybe he will be later. Uh, but he raised a question during our conversation two weeks ago. Well, what do we do then when we get to, say, Hebrews? Uh, and as we read today from Hebrews 9, as we were opening, what do we do when we get to Hebrews where it says, well, there's now a new covenant. And in fact, that new covenant has replaced the old covenant. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come, uh, and so how do we reconcile these things? And if you remember uh, Jay's question, you might also remember Steve Barry's response. Uh, Steve Barry said, well, that really gets to the next chapter. Uh, and that is exactly what we're talking about today. Uh, if you have your copy of Christ in the Covenants, you can open to page 53, uh, and if not, you've got uh, a handout that I have out there on the table. Hope you picked one up. 
Um, and uh, just a summary, what is this chapter all about? The, the objective uh, is to deal with what he calls the, uh, the luxuriant diversity of covenantal administration that emerges as history progresses. He says that the covenants do not appear as monotonous duplications of one another. And so when the people are led out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai, God doesn't show up and say the same thing to them that he said to Abraham. He doesn't say the same thing to Abraham that he said to Noah. He doesn't say the same thing in Jesus uh, in the new covenant that he said through Moses or to David, although a lot of those elements, thematic and structural and genealogical, a lot of those tie together as we see this, uh, what he calls the, uh, the progressive, this historical progress in God's covenantal administration. So uh, on the handout, I have uh, two pages stapled together for you. Uh, the front and back of the first sheet are just a, an outline of chapter 3. Uh, you may disagree with the way that I've broken it down. We can talk about that as we go along. Chapter 4, thank you, Lee. I've got a disagreement already. Um, <laughs> it is chapter 4, thank you. Uh, there's just a breakdown of chapter 4, and you can see that, and we'll use this as a guide just to go along to help us remember what's in this chapter. Uh, because maybe, like me, you also prepped for last Sunday uh, and played catch-up last night. So, so we'll refresh our memories this morning. Um, and, uh, and then the second sheet that I have for you is a set of discussion questions that we can use as we go through. And so just before we get into the meat of any of his arguments, he's going to talk about uh, really uh, wrestling with, with three of the ways that theologians have tried to uh, to categorize this diversity. How do we wrap our minds around uh, how, uh, how to put these in buckets, right? And he's going to give us three possible ways to do it. One is uh, pre-creation, post-creation covenants. We'll talk about that. Now, the second he gives us is covenant of works slash covenant of grace. And then the last one that he gives us is old covenant, new covenant. And that's the language that gets picked up in Hebrews, uh, and we'll see as we go through in Galatians. But before we get there, uh, the first discussion question for you. Uh, we can't know the mind of God, but apart from his personal delight in unfolding his plan of redemption in stages through human history. So what is the benefit of the luxuriant diversity of God's covenants? That's what he calls them. Uh, what would we lose if God just gave all of it to us up front uh, in the first chapters of Genesis? How, how are we benefited by seeing God's unfolding covenantal dealings with his people instead of just plop, here it is. Dave, you had a hand. <laughs> yeah, speculative theology. We, we can keep ourselves busy for centuries in the church, and so we have, yes. Uh, so, so maybe there's a danger there. Uh, I, I did sense a little bit of sarcasm, Dave. Um, so uh, speculative theology, and, uh, and in fact, that's the first issue that he gets into when he talks about pre-creation, post-creation covenants, uh, is a suggestion that there's a little bit of speculative theology going on. Um, but, but what's the benefit for us? We see God working in, in manifold ways and diverse ways for his people through the ages. Cynthia. So for those playing along at home later, perhaps, uh, to repeat your, your statement, essentially uh, what we see is, is God, uh, what, was the, what was the phrase you used, Cynthia? Um, I was thinking course corrections, uh, but you didn't use that, that phrase. So, so God uh, is, is pointing us back in the right direction as we go along. So he, he gives us uh, more ways to see our sin, more distinct ways to see our sin. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the things that you see when you get into Romans, uh, when Paul begins to make the argument that death spread to all men through Adam, even though the sinning before Moses was not like the sinning after Moses. Wait a minute. Uh, what's going on there? I, I, can't I think it's chapter 4 in Romans. Um, and he essentially says, well, well, death reigned even before the law, the Mosaic law, came because we were sinners, we were covenant breakers, but when the law came it began to define sin in more explicit terms. 
right? And so God is taking us and he's saying, well, you, you know by my, my uh, image upon you, right? That's part of the, the argument in Romans that we, we're without excuse, actually. Now, even without the Mosaic law, we know that God exists, that he, uh, that he demands holiness from us. Uh, we can see his works in creation, the things that he's made, and we're without excuse. But God is leading little by little, dealing with the sin of his people, pointing us back in the right direction and moving us in a, in a particular trajectory. Have I caught your... Okay, good. I, I like that. I agree with that. Thank you. That, that is one of the benefits. Um, that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not this monotonous sort of, uh, oh, well, we, we've gotten it all and we've got to figure it out. Uh, but we can place ourselves as the, the people coming out of Egypt place themselves, right? And the people entering into the promised land, we saw this last time, this unity of the covenants. They stood in Deuteronomy on the edge of the promised land and said, God didn't make a covenant with our forefathers in the wilderness. He made a covenant with us. And so they include themselves in God's covenant dealings in all generations because they see that God is doing this, uh, this wonderful large thing with his people as he goes along. Dave had a hand again? <laughs> uh, maybe another course correction. Okay. Let's take that and run with it, Dave. So he, he says uh, machine learning, billions of layers trying to, trying to seed all of this stuff and figure out what's going on. There is an element of that that in the New Testament, God says in the fullness of time, Christ was born. Uh, he came into the world in the fullness of time. But what's the fullness of time? Well, the scholars want to talk about the Pax Romana and the fact that the word could get out to all the world. And maybe that's part of it. But we also see that after generations and generations of God giving his law and these stiff-necked people banging their heads against uh, their own inability to keep that law, finally there's this longing and this crying out in the intertestamental period, when is God going to send the Messiah? If God sent the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3 and said, now you've got to figure it out, we might think, well, there was that one sinful couple back then, but everybody else has been pretty good, and we, we've got it figured out. There is, this, uh, there is this history, not only of God working salvation, but showing us our need for salvation, right? And so we go through Abraham and Moses and David, and everybody falls short, until we're longing as we're reading the Holy Scriptures for, for the one to come who is promised. Uh, I just heard from, uh, from Dave McAdams, who's the pastor of New Life uh, Fellowship Church here in, in Concord. Uh, there's a guy who's just been converted, who's attending their church. Uh, he's some PhD from somewhere, and he had this, this sense that he had to go and buy a Bible. Uh, he's got you know, education and PhDs, and, and so what do you do if you want to learn a religion? Well, you get their text and you read beginning to end. So he went to a dollar store, he bought a KJV for a dollar, he sat down in Genesis and he started going. He's now converted, but now in the New Testament, right? And he's been walking through that history for the first time and seeing, we really need Christ, don't we? We need the one that God was going to send. And so it's a, a blessing for us, this luxurious diversity. Good. Uh, let's, let's move on uh, into this first argument that he gives to us, wrestling really with different categories, ways that theologians uh, have dealt with um, the, the diversity in the covenants. And the first one that he points is this pre-creation, post-creation covenant. And he does not give this much time. Uh, this is uh, a big issue in Reformed theology. Uh, do you follow what is sometimes called the covenant of redemption, sometimes called the pactum salutis, sometimes various names, the eternal covenant, all these other things. And here's where he kind of dismisses it and says, well, that's speculative because we don't have explicit references that says uh, this is a covenant. He goes on and makes a few other arguments uh, one of the arguments that he makes uh, in this, this brief 
uh, section of a couple paragraphs, really, uh, is the idea at the end uh, of that section, page 54, should be noted further, he says, that most of the discussion in this area is built on the assumption that a covenant was to be defined as a mutual contract, not as a sovereignly administered bond. And in view of more recent light on the character of the biblical covenants, the feasibility of a covenant among members of the Trinity appears even less likely. So there's his other argument. If you understand what he's saying there, um, if we're going to think of a covenant between the persons of the Trinity, if it is a covenant, it has to be vastly different between, uh, than, than God's covenant with man. God's covenant with man, you may have heard the terminology before, is called a, or, or known in the ancient Near East as a suzerain vassal treaty. There's a king, and there's a people under the king, and it's a superior making a pact with an inferior. But that doesn't happen in the Trinity. Uh, they are equal in power and glory, equal in will and determination, uh, equal in, in God's decrees, there is one divine will, though there are three divine persons. And we've wrestled to, to, to figure that out in our finite minds. And so the argument he's making here is that, that if there is a covenant, it's got to be very different than the covenants as we're talking about them, uh, God working out his covenants with man. Now, uh, I know that when we, when we spoke on the first two chapters, I saw a lot of hands of people who have studied reformed theology, and so let's open this can of worms that he, <laughs> he ignores. Um, how many of you are familiar with the idea, familiar with the idea of uh, an eternal covenant, or what he calls the covenant of redemption? One, two, three, four, five, six, all right, wow, um, that's fewer than I thought. Um, what do you think of his argument? Maybe those that are familiar or, or those that, that have just uh, encountered this for the first time, do you buy his argument that, you know what, uh, there's nothing explicit and, uh, and it really is speculative for us to say that it's a covenant? Okay, as far as what? Charles, and then Chris. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, and, and there are, so he... This is where I feel like he, he gives this short shrift. Uh, cards on the table. I'm not convinced of, uh, of the eternal covenant uh, or, or that concept, though as I've been studying over the last two weeks, I'm becoming closer to being convinced of it. Um, there are these passages where God promises. Uh, and in fact, there are these passages where you, you look at the Old Testament, uh, the Psalms then applied to Jesus in the New Testament, uh, where he says in the book, uh, in your book it is written of me, behold, I delight to do your will. Well, that book is in Psalm 110, referencing that book. Where's that book? Well, it's God's eternal decrees. It's, it's a book written by the mind of God or in the mind of God, however we conceive it. And again, it stretches our, uh, our finite conception, uh, this, uh, this agreement, this design to send Christ into the world. And so there are these isolated passages, um, but uh, we don't have a verse that says there was a pact, there was a covenant between the members of the Trinity before the foundations of the earth were laid. Uh, and so he's, he's saying, well, uh, we, we shouldn't follow that. Now, uh, we could, uh, i got a quote here for you, Guy Richard he says, perhaps the most questionable element of historical federal theology is the covenant of redemption. This is, this is not a, a new debate or a small debate. This has been going on for a long time. Uh, Guy Richard actually uh, believes in the, the covenant of redemption. We could stack our sources on both sides. Uh, he references in the footnotes Charles Hodge, 
Charles Hodge, I think, makes a, a pretty strong argument for the covenant of redemption. Uh, here's, how, here's how Hodge puts it. Uh, first, he, he deals with, and I'm skipping over a section, uh, Hodge deals with the question of where are the proof texts, right? Where are the individual texts that tell us that this is going on? But he says, the proof of the doctrine has, however, a much wider foundation, so wider than individual proof texts. He says, when one person assigns a stipulated work to another person with the promise of a reward upon condition of the performance of that work, everybody following? There is a covenant. When there is a, an agreement that you do this work, I give you a reward for the work, that's a covenant. He says, nothing can be plainer than all this is true in relation to the Father and the Son. The Father gave the Son a work to do. He sent him into the world to perform it. And he promised him a great reward when the work was accomplished. Such is the constant representation of the scriptures. We have, therefore, the contracting parties, the promise and the condition. These are the essential elements of a covenant. Redefining covenant. Yes, yes. Uh, so Scott was going to respond to that or, or add to that? Yeah, and, and so the, the, the claim here uh, Dave is making is that, well, if we just redefine the terms, and, and Rob is saying the same sort of thing, if we redefine the terms, we can make covenant show up in lots of places. Uh, is it an agreement? Is it a pact? Is it a promise? Is it a, you know, all these, these different things? I think we do have to agree with Robertson that if it is a covenant, if we want to call it a covenant, it's much different than the covenants that God makes uh, with human beings. Because there, there's no greater and lesser. There is a complete parity of the persons in the Trinity making uh, the covenant. Um, uh, what's that? A hyper-covenant. Yeah, yeah. Divinely administered is true. Yes, yes. Um, and, and we could go down, uh, oh, I found so many rabbit trails <laughs> dealing with this issue that we won't get into. But you may recall that in the first week of our studies, we, we dealt with that question in the Westminster Larger Catechism, with whom did God make the covenant of redemption? Uh, and, uh, or the covenant of grace, rather. With whom did God make the covenant of grace? And the Westminster Larger Catechism says God made it with Christ. And Charles Hodge says there is evidence of the eternal covenant. Uh, that he's made it with, uh, that the Westminster Confession itself teaches the eternal covenant. At the end of the day, you can choose to, to believe in this eternal covenant or not believe in this eternal covenant as far as the language that we use. As we get into the next section, I'm going to disagree with some of the language that is used, and that's okay for us to do that, as long as we understand what's on the table. Uh, R.C. Sproul, in dealing with the covenant of redemption, this eternal covenant, says essentially that it is inferences that we gather from the New Testament about the person, work, and mission of Jesus. Great. Perfect. Uh, whether we want to say that this is a pact, a promise, an agreement, a covenant, uh, or, or just the divine will working itself out uh, as God divinely administrates that throughout human history, what we're left with is a grand unity between Father and Son and Holy Spirit and how God's people are drawn to him. One of the things uh, that, that I'll get to you in just a secondly, uh, one of the things that, uh, that R.C. Sproul deals with when he deals with this uh, is this question that some people have in their minds uh, that what Jesus did when he came into the world was to twist the arm of the Father, right? We have this Old Testament God who's vengeful and he's angry and he's mad at your sin, but Jesus comes and Jesus loves you and Jesus changes the will of the Father so that God, God the Father will now receive you on the basis of the Son who says, well, you know, come on, they're, they're mine, aren't they? And he says, absolutely not. 
<laughs> what we gain, if we want to call the eternal covenant a covenant, a pact, an agreement, or, or whatever we want to style it, what we need to understand is the complete unity between Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and drawing the elect to God. Right? There is no uh, exchange or interplay or disagreement between the Father who wants to condemn sinners and Jesus who wants to save them. You read that all throughout the Gospel of John. Anytime Jesus begins to talk about who he is as the one sent by the Father, he does nothing of his own will, but only what he sees the Father doing that he does. He gets those the Father gives to him. And so again, you, you can... Uh, you can use this terminology or not use this terminology, but what's at stake, again, is this idea of unity. And there, there's not a disunity between, if we want to call it a pre-creation covenant and a post-creation covenant, because it's all dealing with God who saves his people. Lee. I think you could. So if I'm understanding your question correctly, um, let me repeat it and see if I've got it. So clarify your question for all of us, Lee. You said, how do we differentiate between the unity of the covenants? Yep. Yep. Yes. That's a really good question, and I think, uh, we'll, we'll call on Rob here in just a minute, because he's done a lot of, uh, what do you call it, shade tree metaphysics. Um, but, but this is an argument, I think, in favor of saying, well, it's not really a covenant. The, the statement is, if... But, uh, Lee, as you're bringing in the, the unified uh, person and will of God, if we're going to call this a covenant or an agreement, we have to recognize that there has never been a time, there is not a time, uh, in which God is not in agreement. There was not a divergence of wills that God, by a divine eternal covenant, said, let's come together on this, Right? And you see that even in Hebrews, and I apologize if we're getting far afield. This is the danger of speculative theology. Um, uh, but you see that even in Hebrews when it talks about the Son, uh, today I have begotten you. When? Well, th that's the eternal today. Uh, he is the eternal begotten Son. The, the one uh, who has always been Son, has always existed as Son. The Father has always existed as Father, and yet one God. And so we're wrestling with uh, there is no disunity in the Trinity, right? There's no disagreement that has to be solved by the persons of the Godhead coming together. And so one of the ways that we can think about this is not the, the, uh, the persons of the Godhead, but what we sometimes call the economy of redemption, right? Uh, so uh, not the, and, and here are the big theological words, not the ontological Trinity, but the economic trinity. Not God as he is, but God as he does, if you understand those, those distinctions. God in his being is one. But God in his doing, we find in scripture that different actions are attributed to different persons of the trinity. God the Father 
sends the Son to accomplish redemption. God the Son comes and works salvation for the people God uh, God the Father has given him. God the Holy Spirit applies the work of Jesus Christ to those people in time and space. Now, one God, and we're we're getting into Trinitarian theology, uh, and so we're we're stretching, but, but I would say the argument that you're making or the question that you're raising is a good step in the direction of saying, well, there's no problem with the Trinity that an eternal covenant solves. Does that make sense to everybody? Rob, do you want to add to that? Yet again. So we're, we're going to rein it in, because we're getting pretty far afield. We're going to keep on moving. Um, I think that the takeaway here uh, is that we could keep speculating, couldn't we? <laughs> and this, this is what Robertson is trying to get us uh, not to do. Uh, but you'll, you'll notice, and I want you to look at those questions that I've got for this section later. Don't answer those now, because we have some, some other things to deal with really comes down to a, to a question of, uh, do we only hold on to theological concepts when there is an explicit scriptural reference that tells us uh, to, to formulate this? Here's an example. Infant baptism. <laughs> we baptize babies, uh, and we believe we do so on proper theological grounds, though there is no New Testament scripture that says also, when the children of believers are born, you should baptize those babies. Doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, it's spelled out in various ways. We draw inferences. And so those questions, uh, should we reject a theological idea if there's no explicit proof text? And on the other hand, must we accept a theological concept that makes sense of our system uh, if we can't point to explicit proof text? Talk about that amongst yourselves. We're going to keep moving. Uh, the second way that he... Uh, Landon, you going to slow me down? <laughs> I, I had that set, but yes, go ahead. Yep. 1.7. Sure. Yes, it doesn't have to be explicit, but by good and necessary consequence. Um, and, uh, and chapter 1.7 is the perspicuity issue. All things are clear, not alike plain in themselves are clear unto all, yet all those things which are necessary to be, necessary to be known are so clearly propounded open in some places scripture that not only the learned but the unlearned uh, may attain sufficient understanding of them. So... Uh, if we get into some of these theological issues, you're exactly right, Landon, uh, and this is important for what we're going to be talking about in the coming chapters, um, that, uh, that we can go to what God has given us. In a sense, Robertson has already done this. In defending the existence of the covenant of works, he said, well, talks about the covenant of creation, talks about Adam breaking a covenant, and so let's infer for what that means. He's already done this, uh, and so there's no harm. In fact, it's a good thing for us to, to look at Scripture, interpreting Scripture, and say, how does this help us to understand? Now, moving on uh, to the second section. I knew I wouldn't get through this short chapter. 
I knew it was going to happen. Um, the second section and the question he raises, the other way of breaking this down, is between covenant of works, covenant of grace. And you've seen this is also a pretty, pretty um, uh, straightforward section where he says, on the one hand, nothing to disagree with. This is the classic reformed uh, breakdown of God's covenantal structure with man. Uh, and the dividing line is the fall in the garden. The covenant of works is God's uh, covenant relationship with Adam and with Eve at, under him. He's the federal head, the, the representative in the garden. Uh, and he enters into covenant relationship with them. Uh, and he promises them life upon condition of perfect uh, personal obedience. He gives them a command, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day which you eat of it, you shall die. Uh, this implied promise that on the days that, days that you don't eat of it, if you don't eat of it, you will continue to live. Uh, and so there's this promise to him, and that is broken at the time of the fall in the garden. And so God shows up, Genesis chapter 3, we studied this around Advent, uh, this proto-evangelion, God shows up and immediately after the fall in the garden makes this promise to send a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. It's God's gracious action that he not only promises life as he promised in, uh, in the garden through the covenant of works, but he promises life and salvation to all those who trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus now is the one who performs the works that we can't and we are saved by faith in him. And he says, no disagreement with that general structure whatsoever. Does everybody understand that, that general structure? Because this is the foundation of what we're going to be studying for the rest of this book, this distinction between a covenant pre-fall and all the covenants gathered together post-fall. Does everybody understand that? Okay. He says, no disagreement with that, but he has some quibbles about the language. Uh, do you agree with his quibbles about the language? Uh, and, and if so, why? If not, why not? And he also has a, a recommended change uh, from covenant of works and, uh, and grace to covenant of creation and redemption. What do you think about his argument, Scott? You think his, uh, his corrective language is helpful, okay? And you said corrective, uh, it's helpful because of the way that we have erred with work. So the argument he makes is that if we relegate pre-fall covenant to being called the covenant of works, that we will misunderstand the, the responsibility for believers in Christ also to produce good works. And so if we eliminate that distinction, that's helpful for us to see. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's really helpful, and, and that, uh, that is a corrective that we need, that we don't think, well, uh, there, there was work in the garden, but now we just sit back and, uh, and wait for things to, to come our way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what is sometimes called easy believism. Uh, what Bonhoeffer in, um, uh, in uh, what is it? book on discipleship calls cheap grace. Excuse me? Cost of discipleship. Thank you. Uh, the, the name is escaping me. Uh, cheap grace. This idea um, of, you know, I, I signed that, that commitment card, uh, never went to church, never followed up on it, but I, I've got it. I folded it up. It's in my wallet. I know that I'm saved because I did this one point one time, uh, what we would call easy believism or, or decisionism. Yeah. So that, that's a good corrective. Uh, anything else that you think is good there, or things that you think are bad there? But we want to push back on Roberts. Cynthia. Yeah, and, and here's where I'm going to agree with Scott. I'm also going to agree with Cynthia. 
Uh, and I'm going to tell you that I do not plan to use the language of covenant of creation, covenant of redemption. Uh, I think what we have, covenant of works, covenant of grace, is clearer, is better, uh, is classic. Um, and we get into um, muddy waters now. We just spent 20 minutes talking about an eternal covenant of redemption. And he says, well, we should reject that, but we should take this new covenant of redemption. Uh, and we're going to trip ourselves as we go through. Also, one of his arguments for changing the language is that he thinks, uh, or that he argues, if I could summarize it, that when we call the pre-fall covenant a covenant of works, that that narrows it too much, really focusing on that, that probationary period for Adam in the garden. But when he goes to expound this in the chapter on the, what he calls the covenant of creation, he begins to, to talk about what, what we wouldn't normally throw into the covenant of works, namely the creation mandates of marriage, work, and Sabbath. I think those are important things, and those are part of the, the, um, <clears throat> the thumbprint of God on creation, not just on, on the image of man, but how he's created everything to work. I think those are important things, but when we're talking about the creation, I'm sorry, I, see, I'm tripping myself up already. When we talk about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, we see that very clearly as pinpointing God's covenants and, and uh, specifically his, uh, his salvation to his people. When we expand the covenant of works to a covenant of creation, and we add in Sabbath and marriage and work, and that's just the order of things. I think what we're talking about and what we need to see as we go through is the fact that we need a new Adam to do for us what the old Adam has not done for us. And it's not that the old Adam uh, didn't work, didn't practice Sabbath, didn't get married. It's that the old Adam ate the tree, that ate the fruit from the tree that God told him not to eat. It really does focus on that that one, uh, that one action. So our kids are learning the children's catechism. What was the sin of our first parents? The sin of our first parents was eating the forbidden fruit. That's what it was. Uh, it really does focus on that because it really is a question of how can we be brought to God? Remember, in our first uh, class, we talked about the nature of covenants, and it said that, uh, 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 where is it? The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. That's what's in stake in the covenants. Not just how is life to be ordered, but who is our blessedness and our reward? How can we come to God? Well, Adam failed to come to God because he ate of the tree. And we come to God because Christ has fulfilled the covenant of works on our behalf and we're drawn into that through grace. So just, just so you know, um, pay no attention to the headings in the chapters. I will be using the language of covenant of works, covenant of grace as we go forward. Any question about that before we spend the last three minutes on Galatians? We can summarize Galatians in three minutes. Good. All right, so the last one that he deals with is this question of old covenant, new covenant. Uh, and here's where the argument gets a, a little sticky. Uh, but this really gets to that question that Jay raised last time. Well, we see, and he acknowledges, especially in Hebrews, that there is a distinction uh, in the scriptures between what we sometimes term the old covenant and the new covenant. Christ initiates a new and a better covenant, uh, a new and a better temple made, with ha made without hands. Uh, you know, th this, uh, this real holy of holies that, he's en that he enters into. And so what is the principle that, uh, that ties um, the, the uh, old, what we call the old and the new covenants together so that we can see that they're really not as different as some would make them out to be? Is that a, is that a clear question? He, he, tell, he tells us that it's based on, on a certain dynamic. And, and what is that dynamic? The, the relationship between what we sometimes call the old and the new covenant. was a bad question. No wonder nobody can answer it. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So in that first point uh, that I've got in your, your breakdown there, 
uh, your outline, is this idea of promise, shadow, or prophecy and fulfillment, reality, real realization. Uh, and that binds the old and the new together. Right? So we're not talking about when Christ comes, and even that passage that we read from Hebrews at the beginning, uh, it, it doesn't say that Christ came and did away with this whole tabernacle thing, and he did this totally new thing. No, no, no. He took what was a shadow in the Old Testament times, and he has fulfilled it in reality in himself. So this idea that as we're reading the Old Testament covenants, as, as God's interacting with Moses and Abraham uh, and David, as he's giving revelation through covenantal relationship, what it's doing is all pointing forward to the same place. And when Christ comes, there's a sense in which sometimes the New Testament talks about replacement, but there's also a sense in which it really talks about fulfillment. It replaces those shadows because once the once the reality has come, the shadows become obsolete because they've all been pointing in the same direction. Is that clear for everybody? Even though I had a bad question in the beginning. Teresa. Yes, ma'am. I am. So uh, take a look back. Um, this language of antithesis. Take a look on page 58. Uh, the, the fourth paragraph, one, two, three, four, five. The fifth paragraph. The one that has a question mark next to it in my copy. Um, <laughs> The apostle himself modifies each of the contrasts he sets up, with one exception. Sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, he tempers the absoluteness of his antithesis. Uh, and then I wrote a, a question mark in the margin because you go, well, what are you talking about here? Well, as, as we go through Galatians and as he begins to make his arguments, notice the way he says, well, in one breath, Paul says there's a division say, between Abraham and Moses. But in the next breath, he says, actually, they're doing the same thing. So uh, in, um, let's just turn to Galatians, because we've got all, all the time in the world to do that. Um, so the first one that he, that he gives us um, and, and on your outline, uh, this will be uh, point 3A, new patterns, same salvation. Okay, so there's the distinction that there is a new pattern. Christ has come. Christ was not in the, uh, the time of the Old Testament, but now Christ has come. And so Paul divides human history according to the coming of Christ, the object of our faith. And that necessitates a change in the way that we approach God. Not that, that it's, it wasn't by faith and now it's by faith, but then it was faith looking forward and now it's faith looking backwards, right, to the reality that's come. Um, yet, and this is the second point, the believer's salvation is into the same gospel that was preached beforehand in the Abrahamic covenant. This is Galatians 3, 8 and 9. It says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying... In you shall all the nations be blessed. And so on the one hand, we could say, well, there, there's a difference, right? It was just Jews before, now it's Jews and Gentiles. It was shadows and prophecies before, now it's looking to the reality. And yet Paul says, even though there's this diversity, this antithesis, he says he tempers that antithesis, he brings these two together by saying, God preached the same gospel to Abraham. It wasn't a different gospel. It was the same promise that in you shall the nations be blessed, that is, through the seed that would come. Do you see what he's doing there, right? So he's, he's pointing out uh, that there is this diversity, sometimes old patterns, or different patterns, rather, same salvation, sometimes the distinction between promise and law. And so that's the, the argument further down in chapter 3. Um, and, and in your outline, this is going to be uh, point B. Point B and C. So the antithesis is in point B. 
Justification always by faith in God's promise, not by works of the law. So there's a contrast between Abraham and Moses, right? Uh, and, and the contrast shows up uh, because it says, well, it's, it's not by law, it's by promise. The law came, uh, but the promise was already there through Abraham, right? So there's a, there's a distinction. But uh, he points out as he goes on in, uh, in page 60 uh, that circumcision actually is not just a law, but it was part of the promise. So you see, again, he drives a, a, a division between Abraham and Moses, and then he brings them back together. All this to say, his main point is that, that Paul is not arguing against the law as distinct from grace. He's arguing against a misunderstanding of the law. And, and we're, we're jumping so quickly. I apologize that I wasted so much time on something that he spent two pages on that now we don't have time to deal with the real meat of the argument. Um, but essentially, what he's saying is uh, the law is not bad as long as we use it lawfully. This is the point that Paul makes elsewhere, right? If we use the law as a pointer to Christ and something that reveals our need for Christ, that's good. And in fact, in that way, there is no division between what the law was intended to do and what Christ has come to accomplish. Does that, that make sense? Because the law was always pointing toward the same Christ. What he's arguing against in Galatians is what Robertson calls a misunderstanding of the law because the Judaizers were saying, well, uh, what you really need to be saved is not just Christ, but Christ and the law. Not that the law was pointing to Christ, but that the law was in addition to Christ. You've got Jesus, that's fine, but you don't have salvation unless you also have circumcision. And that actually is not what the Old Testament law was intended to do. So if we understand the, the correct relation between the Old Testament law and Christ who comes as the object of our faith, there is no division, even though there is diversity. Is that clear? Questions on that? I'll just run you right up to the bell so that you, no time for comments. Scott. And so just to bring that to the conclusion, and this is a, at the bottom of your outline, this is a quote from page 61. He says, old and new covenants merge into a basic harmony. Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants unite in the purposes of God's grace. In other words, both promise and law are pointing in the same direction. Though they are doing different things, they are revealing God's intentions and his salvation in different channels or avenues or ways, whatever you want to call it, Yet they're pointing to the same Christ, the one who was the promised seed, the one who was the perfect law keeper. They're both looking to him. So there is a unity, even though there's a diversity. He says, but no unifying factor whatsoever arises to harmonize the message of the Judaizers with the message of Christ. That's why Paul makes such a break between what they're trying to do and what God has actually done. They're saying, no, no, no. Uh, the law wasn't pointing to Jesus. The law is meant to be in addition to Jesus. And he says, absolutely not. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the one who keeps the law. And so though there are distinctions, we need to see them in, a, in, a, in an essential unity. All right. Uh, so next time, uh, we are going to be in chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to try and... Uh, I can't do it. Uh, ask Nick... We have conversations where we'll read a chapter and we'll, we'll talk for, for two and a half hours. Um, uh, yeah, it's hard for me to, to get moving on a text because uh, I see so many rabbit trails, and you do too. But hopefully this is helpful. And if nothing else, this stirs up conversation among your families or in your homes uh, or between believers later, and you've got some discussion questions that we didn't touch yet. Uh, and so maybe those are some things you can take and use in your own study. So let's pray together and chapter 5 next time. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your covenant faithfulness. We pray uh, that you would help us to forget uh, all of the weak and feeble speculation that we make and that we would be drawn to the truth of your word, 
Show us by inferences in your holy, your holy scriptures. Show us by uh, the system of theology brought together through what we can understand. Help us to search the scriptures to see if these things are true. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Do that same thing as we come uh, together to worship. Speak to us and meet us at your table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.